You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Welcome, good afternoon, uh, April 22nd, 2022 edition of Offscript American Theatre's podcast and live Facebook chat on all things theatrical. I'm uh, Rob Weiner, Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you today, actually, in reality, from Queens, the home of the uh, Lenape people. Uh, behind me is not that. It, this is uh, on another coast. This is a Mountain View Performing Arts Center behind, behind me, because uh, today's guest today, when I, when I speak later, will be Tim Bond, the Artistic Director of Theatre Works Silicon Valley, which performs out of that beautiful space behind me. Um, I wanted to, to note a few things. Uh, we're published by TCG, um, and so uh, and we rely completely on donations, a little bit of advertising, but mostly on your donations. So please consider becoming a member of TCG to support our efforts here, uh, continue conversations like this in the journalism we do. And speaking of the journalism we do, um, I wanted to celebrate today's Earth Day and a celebration. Um, we had a package that came out in March 2020 a month which lives in infamy for other reasons, but it was our uh, package on theater and climate change, um, including both eco-friendly theater practices, um, you know, ways that uh, theater artists can, you know, be, be kinder to the environment and, uh, and avert climate crisis, but also uh, theaters and companies and plays and playwrights that are addressing it in their work. These are not mutually exclusive, they're actually interrelated um uh, uh themes you know the theaters that are make, doing plays about climate change are also trying to do practices which are uh friendly to the earth but uh so that's a great package to look at and uh, we'll, we'll share that in it in the in the uh comments below this uh it's american theater it was theater theater uh and climate change was the issue march 2020 we'll take a look for that um in the past couple of weeks we've been busy with features and I say we, my associate, Allie Pearson, is producing today. She's not on camera. Hello, Allie. Thank you for your work. Uh, she's helped uh, put together a lot of features this, uh, in the past couple of weeks since our last off script. We've had, it's a very busy time in New York right now. Uh, a lot of Broadway shows are opening and a lot of off-Broadway things are happening as well. So we did a lot of uh, pieces about uh, straddle Broadway and off-Broadway in the past couple of weeks. Uh, Off-Broadway, one of our most more exciting ones, um, Opening this week is uh, a new production of Wedding Band, the Alice Childress play, um, which we wrote about a couple of years ago. It had an auspicious production at uh, Intamin Theater in Seattle. Um, we wrote a big piece about that. Alice Childress uh, was a black playwright, um, worked a lot off Broadway and almost worked on Broadway with her famous play Trouble in Mind, was supposed to play on Broadway, but she wouldn't change it um, uh, according to producers' requests. So it never premiered until just last year, roundabouts triumphant production of, of Trouble in Mind. Um, Wedding Band is, is, a, is a more of a tragedy, Trouble in Mind be more of a comedy. Um, I'm very intrigued by this production. Um, our interview uh, was with Awoye Timpo, who's directing it and who's also part of a group of, of black theater makers called Classics with an X, um, which are folks, uh, dedicated to expanding the canon um, and looking at classic black black works and recontextualizing them and getting productions. So this is this is 
in in line with that effort. Uh, uh, so that's at uh, Theater for New Audience in Brooklyn is doing the production um, of Wedding Band. So looking forward to that. Um, we also did a had a profile of Raja Feather Kelly, a choreographer whose name keeps popping up all over the place. Right now he's represented by on Broadway by Strange Loop and uh, off Broadway by Suffs at the public. Um, and it's a fascinating uh, 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 piece by him, or sorry, not by him, on him, by Lauren Wingenroth, um, who's a dance writer. Uh, and he seems to be in the, in the mold of many director choreographers who kind of meld theater and dance into one to the point where sometimes, I've noticed this in reviews sometimes, people say, well, I don't see any dancing here. Well, he, Raja's work is, uh, as, as with many artists who, who work in the theater, who are designers or uh, choreographers, he melts it so well that sometimes you don't even think of his dance. He's behind all the movement. Anyway, it's a wonderful piece. And um, he also talks a little bit about that sense of, if people don't see the dance, am I, am I really getting the, the credit? It's not about ego, but he just, he just, so he has some other ideas he's gonna, he's talking about, about original pieces. One of those I'm really intrigued by um, it's called Wednesday. It's based on the, the movie uh, Dog Day Afternoon, which it, it has had performances, but I'm interested in more of his, his original work as well. Um, caught up with Neil Pepe, who's the artistic director of Atlantic Theater Company for 30 years now. Um, we talk about how he didn't really plan to be there for 30 years, but he's, he's had a good run there. And um, currently he's represented on Broadway by a revival of American Buffalo, uh, the David Mamet play. And yes, we do get into a little bit of the David Mamet stuff. We talked to him before the interview which, in which uh, Mamet said the, the most recent awful thing about uh, teachers being inclined to pedophilia. Um, but, you know, he was already well known as a right-wing troll in many ways. Um, we get into that a little bit, but it's more about running a theater company and uh, directing uh, Directing, directing work, uh, including including Mamet. Um, it's worth a read. I I I, I respect Neil and his work. Uh, another director we wrote about recently was Dmitry Kramov, who uh, who just directed a Cherry Orchard, still running at the Wilma in Philadelphia. Now he's one of the deans of of Russian theater directors, one of, one of the greats. I've seen a bit of his work. Actually, I was privileged to go to Russia some years ago, about ten years ago eight years ago, I can't remember how long, um, and saw some of his work there. And he's taught here and directed here a number of times. Um, but this one, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, Toby Zinman wrote a piece for us about and interviewed him. He flew here three days before the Ukraine invasion. And I don't know if he's able to get back to Moscow. And, and he, has, he had productions lined up. And uh, he makes very moving, in, 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 in the piece, he talks very movingly about how he sees himself as Ranovskaya, the uh, the widow, um, she widow. Anyway, the, the woman who owns the cherry orchard and is in denial about its fate and and her position in society. And he really makes the link between that and, and contemporary Russians. Um, it's apparently a really fascinating production. It's got mostly great reviews. Some people have objected. To, it sounds very. It sounds like it brings the subtext out in the open. It explodes the play in many ways, which is, you know, if anyone's been following contemporary Russian uh, theater, that's what they do. <laughs> I saw a seagull there, Butusov seagull, which was just 
luckily I knew the play, otherwise I wouldn't know what was going on. There was a lot of, a lot of punk rock stuff happening there. Anyway, uh, it is done with, with the Wilma Theater Company. They have an ensemble there called The Hot House, who we wrote about it some years ago. It was our cover story actually about, about seven years ago, uh, The Hot House Theater Company. So that's a fascinating piece, uh, both about Primo's work and about the Wilma. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to note that Ali and I put together a roll call. That's uh, our, our feature we used to do in print and we've tried to keep up online. We haven't done it every month where we just shine a light on six theater workers that we think you should know. And not we necessarily, we, we ask the field to recommend folks. And we try to really cover a wide range of geographies people of various backgrounds, but, but especially people of various jobs. So in this one, we have everyone from the kid who's playing um, Winthrop uh, on Broadway right now and Music Man, Benjamin Pajak, to a COVID safety advisor, to a choral director on the, on the, on the West Coast, uh, a wide range of folks, dramaturgs, uh, education directors. Um, if you have folks you want to recommend for roll call, there's a form. You can go to the, to the story and, and fill out a Google form and recommend someone you think we should know about. And we especially love to hear about people in unsung professions, ushers, board members, admin, uh, you know, uh, dialect coaches, scenic painters. Uh, we got lots of recommendations for actors, writers, and directors, as you might imagine. We'd love to write about them too. Um, briefly, uh, I'll mention, we had a couple of memorials uh, of a sort. Um, one was a memorial for Jay Binder, a giant of, of Broadway casting. Uh, Jack Vertel wrote a beautiful piece. He worked with him not just on uh, Broadway productions, but also on uh, a lot of productions at Encores, in which casting was, uh, in, I wouldn't say the point of those shows, reviving those old shows, but one of the keys to making those, those revivals, those uh, brief special revivals at Encores work was the casting. So Jay Bender did that, he passed away recently. Um, another sort of uh, farewell piece Jeremy Gerard, a critic of longstanding, uh, wrote a bit about looking back on the Humana Festival, which as far as we can tell is gone. Uh, Actors Theatre of Louisville is a year round theater. People seem to forget that. Uh, they program a full season, but they were best known in the larger world for programming, a, a, you know, basically a full season's worth of new plays within a month at the end of, the, at the end of each season. Um, he talks about just, you know, the joys of binging theater with a bunch of other folks from around the country, specifically other critics who don't usually get a chance to hang out or be collegial in that way. So that's definitely worth looking at. We also, um, when we heard the news about Humana, uh, we put together all our, we archived all of our coverage. So you can look for that. All the coverage we've done since the eighties, American theater's coverage of Humana, um, everything from critical uh, looks at it, uh, to a piece by Jimmy Breslin about a play he wrote there. Didn't go so well, and it's a very entertaining uh, read uh, about his experience there. Um, boy, there, there's a lot to cover. I, I will try to make this brief. Uh, uh, one year ago, uh, uh, Kareem Fahmy, a director, created the BIPOC, theater, or BIPOC director database to help theaters who always say they want more diverse directors, directors from more diverse backgrounds, to hook them up with actual directors who who, uh, who are looking for that work. Um, there, as of the print, we, we, we republished this uh, database story uh, a year after its uh, inception. And there were 400, 415 names on it as of a couple of weeks ago. 
Kareem, and we are hoping that there are more on there and that the theaters can find more of these diverse directors. Um, Jill Rafson, who was at Roundabout for many years as their uh, new play director, is now is the new artistic director of Classic Stage Company. I got to talk to her about that, about what it means to 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 be what 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 classic means and 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 the, the unique role that a company like that has in when they revive something, especially if it's off Broadway, in saying this is worth reviving. This is potentially a classic. So she takes that very seriously. I'm very excited about the work that might be done there uh, in the future. Briefly to to look at the uh, other podcasts in our in our little podcast network. Um, we had uh, Tracy Letts, you might've heard of him, the playwright of The Minutes, currently on Broadway, was on the subtext with a wonderful, uh, as always, rumination on many things, including Chicago, uh, the uniqueness of Chicago and uh, and playwriting. Um, and then I was re really excited to debut a new podcast, a new old podcast. The podcast has been around for a while, by a, a theater worker, an artist, an advocate um, named Woodzik in Wisconsin called Theatrical Mustang. That's the podcast. And they are debuting this podcast in a, in a re sort of reboot with American Theater. Their first guest was Sarah Porkalab, wonderful artist, um, who uh, we'll get a chance to see probably, we'll get to see her uh, on Broadway next fall in 1776, but she's going to be in that, that revival uh, at ART. Um, I believe that opens next month uh, in in, uh, in Cambridge. So, lots lots of coverage over the past couple of weeks, um, all of which is preamble. There's no easy segue, but I'm excited to to to, uh, to welcome our guest today, Tim Bond, whose work um, I know going back decades since I used to go to Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and of course we've covered uh, his career as he moved from there to Syracuse Stage, and now. He's the artistic director of TheaterWorks Silicon Valley. Tim, if you could come on camera and we'll say hello. Hey there. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? It's good to see you, even good virtually. You. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Seems to be the way these days. <laughs> it, it does seem to be the way. I'm talking to a playwright tonight who's just 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 across the river from me, but uh, that's the way that's the way it goes. Just, it's just easier. But in any case, um, it's wonderful to have you on, and I wanted to talk a little bit. I I, I looked at bios of you, uh, Tim, and I know that you had spent a long long time in Seattle, teaching and making theater there. But I don't. Uh, I also read a, a story that you got your caught the theater bug playing Mark Antony in a production of Julius Caesar. But I can't figure out where that was. Where, where are you from, Seattle? Where, where are you from originally? Oh, you're going way back. That was that was in, <laughs> that was in fourth grade. Um, okay, uh, but. Uh, well, I grew up in Ohio, actually. I grew up in Toledo oh. um, and then uh, moved to Bowling Green uh, from the ages of like nine through 13 and then moved to California uh, to Sacramento when okay. I was 13 and then eventually ended up in Seattle uh, in, okay. my, in my 20s. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I knew you as from the coast, uh, there was Syracuse for one part of your career, but then mm -hmm. mostly the West Coast, Oregon and, and Seattle. So I just, I just wanted to know that background a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, and you know, then of course you first came to my attention is that you were the artist director. Are we artist director of group theater, one of the founders of group theater. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in Seattle, not to be distinct from the group theater, the famous uh, uh, theater of the '30s. Although, were you, were you, did you take that 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 name with, with that in mind to sort of hark back to the other group theater? No, actually. No. So I was at the group. I, I started at the group in the in the early '80s, um, and okay. uh, and worked my way up from 
intern and all that, all the way okay. to being artistic okay. director. But the theater was founded a few years earlier by uh, Ruben Sierra and um, 11 other folks. And they, they basically were asked one day because they had done this amazing production of, uh, of Short Eyes uh, by Miguel Pinheiro, which put them on the map. And mm. people asked them, what's the name of your theater group? And they go, uh, the group. <laughs> <laughs> Not, not based on anything other than we're just a group of artists making some work. And it's about right. welcoming everybody from whatever background they're in into this group. That's, that's where right. they got their name. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was back in the 90s when, when the word multicultural was the word we used for this kind of work. I, I know that it's not like it's been completely discarded, but I think that we use different words for the, for the kind of diverse work. It's, I mean... Yeah, it was multi-ethnic yeah. when I got there. Multi-ethnic. Okay. And then we oh, okay. changed it to multicultural. And, right. uh, and now it's just about being uh, inclusive and, uh, you know, welcoming all humans uh, from all backgrounds into the work and, uh, and celebrating that spirit, you know, and who we right. are, you know. Yeah. And then how did the organ take, uh, that, that you were there for a number of years as associate artist director. Yes. And then I think near the, near the end of your time, you helped create the FAIR program, the, the internship uh, yes. program. Yes, I was there for about, 11, yeah, I was there for 11 years. seasons, 11 seasons, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yep, That's the time when I started, go, I started going there late 90s, and you were already, you were, you, I think I probably saw some of your productions right away there, um, and throughout that time. Um, and I think, uh, was it Penny Metropolis was the other artist, associate artist director yes. at the time? Yes, yeah, under, yeah. under Libby Apple, yes. Under Penny, Apple. Penny and, I. And, and I was impressed even then, at least by the standards of American theater then, it was an extremely diverse company. I, I remember seeing, um, I think it was Kenny Leon's production of Seven Guitars there. I forget who. Uh, yes. But it, was I was, it struck me, I that company, I thought, just having seen a bunch of plays there, they could cast a show like three times over. It wasn't like they just had this small group of Black actors. They had a bunch, like they had a lot. They had, and it, you know, they had other, other ethnicities were not as well represented at the time. Mm -hmm. But it was, again, by standards of American theater, it was a radically diverse uh, company. I, at least it seemed at the time. I mean, it, that was the '90s, so yes, no, <laughs> we we worked on that very consciously, and um, yeah. that was a big reason that why I was there and what we were we were developing and brought in Octavio Solis as a playwright, and that began to develop mm -hmm. more Latinx actors and and designers became more diverse, and we really were focused on that and started diversity training and all that work uh, through the years I was there um, and made a conscious effort to begin to become a more inclusive company at that time. And, um, and the FAIR program, which I helped found, was, was really a, a, an idea of how we could infuse younger and more diverse uh, theater artists and artisans into the mix and, and administrators and the whole gamut. And uh, I'm very proud, proud of that program. And I think it helped change the entire culture of the organization. Was, uh, and you and you mentioned before you're you're there right now to, to direct a show in Ashland, right? I am actually yes. I just arrived back a couple of weeks ago, and I'm working on August Wilson's uh, one person piece, uh, "How I Learned What I Learned," uh, starring Stephen Anthony Jones, and um, working with Constanza Romero on it, um, who's designing mm -hmm. costumes and is working as my dramaturg. You can't get a better dramaturg. <laughs> Constanza Romero for an August Wilson piece and so we're collaborating on that right now yeah it's fun to be back well I want to get I, I want to get I want to get back to August Wilson because you're directing Gem of the Ocean there in a, a extremely acclaimed production uh 
at TheaterWorks. But I wanted, I wanted to ask you a little bit first before we talk about Jim in August, I could talk about that all day, uh, is about, about TheaterWorks. You started there last year, I think, uh, succeeding the founder, Robert Kelly, who founded it 50 years before. Um, yes. And I know you gave an interview to my colleague, J.R. Pierce at the time, and you talked about the, the theater had a new works focus. Is that right? Yes. Um, I was particularly interested, I think I spoke to him, to Robert about this, was the relationship of Silicon Valley to your theater and the idea of innovation and new work, if, if that was part of, you feel like that's part of the DNA of the company, that it's like innovators. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, it is a part of the DNA of the company and uh, that whole idea of innovation, of, of new development, of finding new voices and birthing new projects is, 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 is baked in. Uh, it's really how the company started uh, 52 years ago um, when Kelly started. It was from, you know, it was really essentially a children's theater, uh, a theater for youth, for teenagers, developing new work together and then creating musicals and and dealing with issues that were relevant to the time. And then they started taking on more classics and doing other works, but uh, having multicultural casting um, has always been a piece of theater works and developing new voices has been a, a key to theater works. So tell me a little bit about the, you, 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 it was a step a little bit up for, up in the budget from Syracuse stage. And also there's not an educational component because at Syracuse stage, you were both head of the drama department and artistic of the company. Yes. Um, I know we sort of glossed over that part of the bio, but if you want to talk about Syracuse stage at all, that's fine too. But I want to ask about what, you know, the transition for you to theater works and sort of what you, you came in the midst of COVID, which must be a strange time to, <laughs> to take over any, any business. Right. Yes. Uh, um, tell me a little bit about just what is, what it's been like working there. Um, yeah. I mean, well, adjusting. you know, uh, being an artistic director in COVID is, is, uh, is no easy feat. Um, and it's, I literally, I, I took the job uh, uh, two months before COVID happened is when I, signed my papers. I was supposed to officially begin um, in March of, uh, of the year, and we know what happened mm. uh, in March. So I lit yeah, March like, the week that I was coming in was the week that COVID hit. And so uh, I was living in Seattle at the time, and we just, uh, my wife and I decided within that next month, let's just move in the middle of COVID, get there, be there in person and and deal with it. And of course, I was at home on a Zoom uh, calls for a year and a half. So I've been uh, spending most of my time in Zoom rooms with my board, uh, in Zoom rooms with my staff, uh, meeting donors through Zoom, uh, occasionally getting coffee with masks in places. Um, and then finally, we got and we did we did over twenty uh, uh, virtual readings or productions uh, mm -hmm. during that time. And then October, we were able to get back to live performance again. And we were uh, one of the first large theaters in California, um, uh, maybe on the whole West Coast to, uh, to bring an audience back. Um, and we did Lizard Boy, uh, Justin okay. Huerta's piece, and um, uh, which is you know, gonna travel to Europe uh, this summer to Edinburgh and, and, and be in England and some other places. So we're, we're excited about that project to start our way back into the world again. And now uh, Gem of the Ocean is our, uh, will be our fifth production uh, live, live performance this season. And um, 
we opened a couple of weeks ago and it's going really great, but it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's the challenge of developing organizational culture and developing a team while you're separate from each other has been a real challenge. Um, and, uh, and it was in the midst of leadership change as well. Um, and in the middle of a racial reckoning. So, um, <laughs> So yes, it's been uh, strange and, and a challenge, but um, in some ways there've been some advantages to having not being in full production and us having time to sort of really assess where the company has been for its first 50 years, where it needs to go, what are the uh, structures that exist within the organization that are upholding white supremacy that we can begin to dismantle and replace with more equitable systems that are more inclusive. So that is a process we've been in with our board and with our staff over the last year and a half. And, um, uh, and now we're back up and running and trying to incorporate and building it all. It's, um, I asked for a big project. I, I, I decided a couple of years ago, I was on faculty at University of Washington. I had a you know, full, a full uh, tenured position um, running the uh, acting program there and the professional acting training program. And I thought, you know, I wanna get back to community one more time and I wanna run a professional theater that's not attached to an academic situation like I was in Syracuse, as wonderful as that was. And, and just do community, like really lay into community and, um, and new work development. And, uh, and I asked for, I said, I want a big project. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't really expect the COVID project and um and all that but uh in a way having what's been going on with we see white American theater and the conscious that it's consciousness it's raising with within the entire industry is is actually been helpful for me in doing what I'd hoped to do here um and we're uh, on a journey <laughs> Well, since you brought up We See You, I was going to ask about that later in the context of, I, I know you were there when, when August Wilson delivered his Ground on Which I Stand speech. And so you've been, you've been in the trenches, you've been in the, in the wars for a long time about, about, again, we talked about it was called multiculturalism. It was called colorblind, quote unquote, casting. There, 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 the, these are the, the debates, the terms have changed. But do you feel like between the Ground on Which I Stand and We See You White American Theater, how far have we come and how far have we not come as a, as a theater field? Because I feel like this has always been the conversation or a version of it, right? Yes. You know, been talking about, yeah. yeah. Been talking about it since the 80s, since I was, yeah. you know, first got started in all this. And um, uh, well, I think the dialogue and the consciousness around uh, we see white American theater and and where we are as a field, where we have been and where we need to go has uh, had a major jump start. Um, uh, 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 it's a, it, this is an inflection point, I think, in the American theater's consciousness and hopefully in our nation's consciousness around these issues. I am a more hopeful person than some um, in, in the sense that I do think we are about to make some major change in, in the American theater that we've been talking about for a very long time in terms of who, who leads at these companies who is uh, around the table and making decisions. Uh, and then uh, we've got to get into our board structures. We've got to get into our staffing issues, uh, into uh, 
who's working as technicians on our shows and what audiences we're uh, welcoming and inviting mm-hmm. um, and what the barriers are to that. We've been talking about it forever, but I think there's we have a template for where the barriers and problems are and what the positive things we can be doing are in a way that um, I think is going to take hold. Uh, it may not take hold with everybody, but it's going to take hold with enough people that we're going to get some uh, significant change in that regard. Now, I say that not saying we're there or that uh, we're not up against structures that are very uh, much uh, based on white body uh, uh you know, supremacy, it is a very uh, thorny, (laughs) you know, uh, situation to unravel how deeply entrenched our theaters are um, uh, in a white supremacy uh, system that uh, runs through our economics, that runs through uh, the the taste and interest of the audience and what they see. And um, and where the the finances come from and how they uh, have supported those systems, either consciously or unconsciously in the past. So, um, but I am hopeful that I don't think we can, people can continue to say, well, I didn't know, <laughs> or, or, uh, or um, you know, I, no one's ever told me that, or I don't, I, I don't understand anymore what you're talking about. Like, I, I think you do. I think they yeah. do. I think yeah. people know. So now you're going to have to decide whether you are on uh, the right side of what is ultimately a moral question um, mm. and, um, and a question of, of, of deep consciousness about who gets to tell whose story and who gets to, whose story uh, gets to be shared and with who. And uh, we have to decide, are we a country that is multicultural um, and democratic or not? And I think they go hand in hand. And the arts can play a major role in, in being a part of that. Yeah, well, that's, that seems like a great segue to talk about August, his work. And I, I really feel like, I think you have a few years on years me, Tim, but I, 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 one of the great fortunes of my life, really, when I look back on it, was that I was around to watch August's work in real time develop new new you know yes. what's the next like 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 i was around when the beatles were around like the, the, the new august wilson plays coming out you know that i really i think i took that for granted at the time uh and just to watch it develop and gem of the ocean was one i was i was there for i we spoke earlier about this uh it had its premiere you said at the goodman yes is that right with, with greta mm-hmm. oglesby yeah so i i talked to him when it came to the taper and he was still working on it. I think it wasn't, you know, I don't know when he locked those shows. I, there was a whole complicated multi-production uh, a way that they, that they worked before they came to Broadway eventually. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you were around for the same thing, right. At, as an artist, um, did this go all the way back to Seattle? Did you know him when he was lived in Seattle? Yes. Yes, yeah. I did. And, and, um, and I, I met him in the early nineties, um, uh, probably 1990 actually. Uh, um, I was thinking back about this and I, I watched him uh, do the reading of seven guitars um, mm-hmm. at uh, the O'Neill. Um, uh, 
I was I sat through rehearsals. Uh, it was really fun at the O'Neill because I got to hear him actually read the play, which is what they 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 still did. I don't know if they still do that there, but the playwrights read their work, and then watch the four day workshop with uh, you know an amazing cast and um, the development of that. And uh, and then I saw him developing uh, two trains running um, at Seattle Rep and um, and sat in those rehearsals. I actually got a TCG observership. And uh, went and, and and hung out for a few days watching he and Lloyd work um, with that cast as it was preparing to go to Broadway, uh, and then um, and then had the privilege of of uh, you know spending time with August when he would come to Oregon Shakespeare Festival um, to see his plays or to see plays that Constanza was working on with me uh, when she was designing different productions of mine like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or um, or uh, Top Dog Underdog and, and those projects. And then August would be there and, you know, he would call me across the bricks, if you know the Oregon Shakespeare Festival bricks, and, <laughs> and well. you know, and say, hey, Tim Bond, you got a minute? You know, and I'd turn around <laughs> and there's August and I would be like, whatever I'm doing, I'd just drop it and just, and, you know, an hour and a half later, he would have told me or however long it was, I mean, time just stopped. And it was like, he would tell me about whatever the next project it was he was working on um and those were those were great times uh really privileged to be part of that stanza was a costume designer right right is that what she yes yeah got yes because his and, wife uh, and still is and still is yeah yes. she still is um and a dramaturg you said right she or at least well yeah, i'm i'm kind of dragging her into the uh, dramaturgy <laughs> world um on these projects and, she, and we're having a great time working on on uh, on how i learned right now yes now, so Gem of the Ocean specifically, I, I know there's a story, there's a, there's a video up on the theater work site, but I just want to hear that story from you. It's a version of what you just said that August called yeah. out to you and said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> let me tell you what. A yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was, it was great. I mean, he, he called me over and he just, you know, we, we were talking and, and he go and he, he would just start talking like um, it was something he had just experienced. And he's like, right. okay, so this guy comes into the house and, He's, you know, knocking on the door and, and, and uh, Ann Esther Anders answers the door and she's 285 years old. Um, she's a spiritual advisor in the community and, and she washes people's souls. And this guy, whose name is Citizen, is asking her. And, and, he, and then like, you know, an hour later, he's told me the plot, the narrative, the story, the, the characters, the dialogue, entire monologues. Um, the whole journey through the city of bones, um, you know, uh, and I've transported, I mean, I'm just like in a, and he's yet to tell me this is a play. He's just telling me this story and it goes on and on. And then, and it leaves me at the end of the story and it's incredibly emotional. And then I, I kind of come back into my body for a second and realize I'm standing on the bricks with August Wilson and he's telling me the story. And he says, so what do you think? is called Gem of the Ocean. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, so this woman fashions a boat out of a bill of sale for her, you know, when she's enslaved. And, and, and this guy gets on that boat and goes to the journey to the city of bones, the bones that are made from all the enslaved Africans who were either thrown overboard or jumped overboard during the middle passage and this guy goes down to that city 
and it's a city made of all of those millions and millions of, of human souls bones. And it was the most stunning story, most stunning image, um, the most amazing transporting conversation I can remember having. I literally was out of my body. Um, he took me on that journey. Um, and so, and then he did the same with me with, with King Hedley II and with Radio Golf. And um, so I heard those three plays, um, those last three plays that he wrote. Um, he, he took me on the journey to, to, to learn about them. Um, and uh, I just cherish those moments deeply. Um, it's really special. I can just imagine, I wonder, you must go back to that and must have gone back to that moment, recapture some of that feeling with, for your, uh, as when you're directing this production. I mean, Absolutely. obviously it's got its own shape with the actors in front of you, but I'm, I imagine that your sort of inspiration for it had to be that moment where August literally imparted it to you. Absolutely. And I mean, I hear his voice, I hear his rhythms, I hear, um, I, I re-feel again the spiritual sort of journey that he took me on. I mean, I get chills down my spine when I think of the moments that he told me about. And I had them then. And I work with the designers and with the actors to create, to sort of cast a spell, um, which is what Anne Esther does essentially, is she sort of casts a spell over Citizen and the rest of the, the group that's there uh, in her living room and takes him on this journey to remember himself, to put himself back together through the understanding of the Middle Passage, to reconnect to his African self, to his, uh, his uh, ancestors who went through slavery, and then to realize who he is to become a whole person, which is what this nation needs to do. Um, we need to go back and remember our history it's not african-american history it's american history and and if we can do that as a nation we can heal and we can become whole perhaps and i believe that's what the american century cycle is about and it's what august's mission on on this planet was about and uh it's it's a mission that i've taken on um to help be a you know uh you know a guide uh, for audiences and artists to uh, to experience these modern classics, these these uh, these lyrical masterpieces that he's created. It's funny you say cast a spell because I think that's the exact phrase that Lily Janik used in her Ray review in the San Francisco, San Francisco Chronicle about your direction mm -hmm. of the play. Um, and Aunt Esther is really just one of those characters. I think like you know he created a lot of amazing characters. I mean they're all indelible. But she's a special. She kind of towers over um, his work in a way. In a way, and I don't know if it's explicit in the play. I'd have to go back and look at the play. But that this age, she's two hundred eighty-five or three hundred years. How old? Two hundred eighty-five. That that that's a, and then I think that in King Hedley too, it's 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 said she dies, right? Yes, she finally dies, um, at whatever age that would be. Um, and I think he he told me once that I was. I thought is is this is this a is this a really a magic realist conceit or is it he said he told me in literal terms it's actually a, a woman who's passed been the, the, the knowledge has been passed to a woman she's not a superhuman methuselah or something who's who's literally right. lived that long right right yes. um 
So you said Gre- Greta Oldersby, who was who created the part of the Goodman. I know Felicia Rashad is very is very associated with the role because she did it, uh, I think, on Broadway and uh, yes. at the Taper, and she wrote a piece actually for us about about creating helping mm-hmm. to create that role. But tell me a little bit about that role, the challenges of it, some of the maybe the pitfalls of of of, of playing a character who's so iconic, is also a human person, but also is kind of this otherworldly creature. Yes. Right? Well, I mean, one of the most amazing characters ever created uh, for uh, the American or any other country's theater. It's extraordinary. And she's the mother of all the characters in his plays. Um, when he really conceived her or how she came to him, I don't know, but I'm very thankful because uh, I uh, I actually have healers in my family, uh, spiritual healers that go back. My great, great grandparents on both sides of my family were both spiritual healers. So it's actually a very personal uh, ancestral story for me in that regard. And Esther is, yes, she embodies the memories um, and the history of uh, Black Americans um, going all the way back through slavery to Africa and through the Middle Passage, and all the way from there, all the way up to 1904, and then eventually to, to uh, where she dies uh, with, uh, in King Hedley, um, which is a different Anne Esther. She is apprenticing um, a, uh, a young woman, Black Mary, uh, in Gem of the Ocean, who will eventually become the Aunt Esther. So my theory is that the Aunt Esther they talk about dying in King Hedley, I believe she's 366 years old at that point, um, is Black Mary. But she is Aunt Esther. She takes on that name. That name is passed from person to person. This is my theory. And and the years go back specifically to 1619, the day that the first African uh, who was enslaved foot touches what would become American soil in Mm -hmm. 1619. So that is why Aunt Esther is the age that she is. If you do the math, you know, it's, uh, there's your 285 years at at that point in history. And so um, she embodies all that. Uh, This, um, August Wilson apparently sent a note back stage to Greta Oglesby when she was uh, at the Penumbra Theater uh, in St. Paul uh, working on uh, uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. And the note said, I thought you were wonderful in the production uh, and uh, I'm writing a role with you in mind. Um, We'll be sending you a script in in a few months. And A.W., you know, August Wilson. And she's like, what? And so then, you know, uh, months go by and then she gets a script in the mail from her agent saying, okay, here's the script. Uh, it's for the world premiere at the Goodman. Um, and, uh, and, and Greta looks through it and she sees Black Mary and she's like, well, I'm a little old for Black Mary. 285-year-old Anne Esther. Well, which one am I? Who am I? Who am I in the play? And she calls over agent agent says, you're playing Aunt Esther, and she can't believe it because the character is so monumental and who yeah. she is is so profound. But of course, Greta, um, August knew who he was casting and who he wanted um, for that yeah. role, and he was thinking of her when he wrote it, which is an extremely you know, amazing honor. So I met Greta right after, I talked to August about her, 
um, right after the show opened. Uh, 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 and he was talking about how wonderful she was and I read the reviews. Well, two weeks later, I'm at the Guthrie and I'm casting crowns um, for my production at the Guthrie and Greta Oglesby walks in <laughs> and I go, you, you were just playing Ann Esther like last month in, in, in Gem of the Ocean. She said, yeah, I was, you know, and I, I, and, and so then she sang for me and, and did some scene work and I was knocked out with her. And I said, first of all, I want you to be in crowns. And second of all, when I do Gem, will you do Gem <laughs> wow. for me? And so we did. And so we worked on it uh, 15 years ago at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, and then uh, uh, that was about 2007, I think. And then, um, and now we're getting an opportunity to work on it again. And she is unbelievable. Her, she's an August Wilson warrior. She played Ma Rainey for me as well. Um, mm. She's got, she's got the language. She has the culture. She has the spirit. She has a spiritual quality of her being and life. But when I mean, she's in these roles, that is transporting and her voice is ancient it like grabs mm. stuff from way back there's some people have a voice and you just go what era were you born in <laughs> <laughs> right, right. she's one of those people and wow. uh and an amazing consummate professional and and has led this cast um and i'm incredibly privileged to know her and to have her come back and do this role again for me that's amazing and crowns is that the uh, regina tether play right indeed yeah indeed. yeah um yeah, so I don't know, you, you pretty much said it all about Greta Oglesby, but coming back to a part, I mean, as she talked about that, and this is an interview with her, but talked about coming back to this part in, 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 all these years later. It's ageless yeah. but by definition, right? That part, some it is, it yeah. is. I joke her, I yeah. said, well, now you're, you're closer to 285. You know? <laughs> but but um, she, she uh, I mean, we've made new discoveries with that character um, mm -hmm. as we work on it. And really the main thing that's different doing it again now is how the consciousness in this country around the need to understand the middle passage and slavery and freedom mm -hmm. and the civil war and reconstruction and right. how we're still fighting those battles is so prevalent. And so Aunt Esther, the need for Aunt Esther is only increased. Right. Um, which is what I think August knew was going to happen. I think he knew that. Well, the, the plays do feel prophetic in many ways. I mean, this is the first uh, in the chronological series, not the first one he wrote, but this is the earliest one, the 1908, or is it? Or is it I forget. 1904. 04, mm -hmm. 04, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but this is one closest to the Reconstruction Civil War um, and yeah. with actual uh, freed slaves uh, yes. among the cast. Um, so I want to try... Uh, I alluded earlier to the fact that we I got I had the privilege of watching August's work develop, you know, not from the start, but I came midway and I just was, you know, and then at some point, I can't remember when, I'm sure that someone's documented this, there was the, the cycle, the cycle, he, he decided he was writing 10 plays, he decided mm -hmm. he was doing, and it, it, that wasn't the initial impulse, right? No. But it became, and it became in this sort of serendipitous way, mm -hmm. and I was always concerned, and I frankly, sometimes as a critic at the time, again, this is, I, I, you know, he's the Ameri great American playwright. So this, just put that, th that <laughs> thought there. But I, I was concerned and I, and I wondered about if you ever felt this about that once he took on that century project, there was a danger 
And once once he started to have the, the some of the characters inter interlock, although they're, they're not all of them, um, they kind of all live in the same universe, right? But but not the same. They're not literally the same family. Mm -hmm. um, I was concerned that it would weigh down the project, or that it would become needlessly complicated, or that he and maybe he felt that way sometimes. I I have to work out the timeline. Again, I had that concern sometimes, and I felt sometimes that maybe it was just taking, he took on a, a weight, like now I'm going to tell the story of my people in a way that he was obviously uniquely qualified to do, and he did it. Mm -hmm. But I was concerned, you know, again, this is one of the things that I, as the plays went on, I mean, Joe Turner is still my favorite of his, if I have to pick one, and that one just sort of stands out as its own standalone beautiful play, which also interlocks with the others. I don't know if, if this is a thought you've had as, as, as you... I will also just, the only other thing I would add is that my initial impression of his plays is always complicated by the second time. If, if I didn't like the play the first time, I go back to it and I go, okay, I didn't see it at all. I just didn't see it the first time. You know, it's mm -hmm. the kind of work you, you revisit. So I think this might be the case with a lot of his work. Yes. Um, that it's a classic, so it bears, you know, revival, reconsideration, reinterpretation. Yes, right? absolutely. Um, Absolutely, Rob. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say I shared your concern. I, I guess I, there was a moment I thought, oh, is this going to, uh, is this going to, I guess what you said about way down, way down the plays or do something. Um, it's more of like he created, I'm just impressed that he created this monumental task for himself mm -hmm. that seemed impossible to do. And that he rose to that occasion that he 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 found a way to get there and that he did it in such a way i mean I, i've studied and taught his plays now for the last 20 years and, and when i was at university of washington i actually was developed some courses specifically around his work and the interconnection as you were talking about the collage that he's created through that and uh, i mean the characters of of gem of the ocean appear in not the same people but their offspring are the are the characters in radio golf which is right. the end of the cycle yeah um in in you know seven guitars those uh, those characters grow up and become the characters in king headley right so uh and then there are other characters like sterling who goes from you know you know two trains running and it shows up in uh, radio golf. So there's this, there's this amazing interconnection, but it doesn't, it, it, it only shows how through the different decades, these ideas and these struggles and this resilience and resistance against the system is maintained and how the spirituality, which for me, when it, the spirituality is the strongest in the plays earlier in the cycle because they're closer to when we were still connected to our African ancestors. And as you move through the cycle, they begin to move further and further away from that connection to Aunt Esther and that connection to our, our African cycle. So, uh, so then you begin to see how the social political fabric begins to chip away. And when you lose Anne Esther finally and, and King Henry II, it's, it's, it's why there's so much violence in, in the streets and what's going on is we've lost our, our connection to our ancestry. And I believe that's my interpretation of what I see happening 
um, in these plays. And then finally in Radio Golf, you get back to them. The fight is over preserving Ann Esther's house and, yeah. and her offspring coming to finally understand who they're the offspring of and what they're, what they need to do as black Americans to, to actually help their people and help our society. And it's not about Starbucks and, and, and Whole Foods. Um, it's, it's about something much deeper. And so he, he was brilliant. He was a genius, uh, uh, just having spent enough time. I mean, truly genius and a poet. Mm -hmm. And as a poet works, a poet leaves breadcrumbs sometimes mm -hmm. and doesn't right. spell it all out. So what you were saying about having to go back to a play again to maybe yeah. get it. I yeah. think that's, I, I encourage people to do that with August all the time. And when they do, they go, I got it. And boy, yeah. did I get it. And now I'm going to read this play and I'm going to, and, and then you, you know, I encourage everyone to read the whole cycle. I think he's an extraordinary, extraordinary poet and playwright. One of the best the world has ever seen. Yeah. I was thinking about sometimes when I was another person, if I don't like to play initially the music, I, I go back. I, I always don't, there's certain artists whose work bears reviewing, even if even if you just still feel like this one's better, this one's less. Yeah, you still have reservations. I there's certain artists you, you I never lose or feel like I waste time spending time reconsidering their work. Um, you mentioned the spiritual yeah. part of it, and I I I that's another way to talk about. I think it's piano lesson and this one that have the most explicit supernatural, let's say, elements, right? Mm -hmm. Like literal ghosts that are embodied in some way or. The, stuff that can't be explained by by science or, or by, by social economic factors um and i wonder it gem of the ocean has the most explicit of that i would say right the city of bones uh, mm -hmm. um and would you call that a kind of magical realism what would you what would you call that and, and when you're staging it how do you think of that you know you're getting citizen to literally feel like he's going through it in re reality yeah um i don't know it's funny i don't i don't I don't talk, I don't have a name for it. Um, okay, right, right. Um, but I guess one could say it's like magic realism. I mean, he was affected, you know, deeply by uh, Borges. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, I've seen ghosts myself. I have seen ghosts mm. in my life. I have had metaphysical experiences like some of the ones that the characters have gone through in the plays. So to me, they're not, they're real. Yeah. <laughs> it's very real for me. And it's how I can help an audience. I'm trying to create a portal for them to, to drop their cynicism about things spiritual or other than them and say, this is real. This is happening right now. And I have to accept that for these characters, this is happening. And maybe for me, for a moment, it's happening to me. And if I can create that and cast that sort of spell over an audience to, to, uh, to go into that, then I feel like I've done my job and, and fulfilled what August is asking. How one does that, what it's called, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, know. No, no, you don't have to define it. I just, I think there's a, there is a resonance with a, a sort of magic realism. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could see that production. It sounds it sounds amazing. The product, the reviews have been ecstatic, and it does feel like it right now. We have heard of, we have heard a little bit about that that year sixteen nineteen lately, right? Yeah, and I feel like I feel like it's in our consciousness, and uh, 
well, you know, his works aren't going to go away. Uh, I think, no, I'm just blanking. Oh, new panel lessons coming, I think, to, to Broadway. That's yes, right. coming to Broadway. With, with Sam Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, there's lines in this play. That, I mean, the reason I chose it is, is after the George Floyd murder, um, mm. I felt like I, I needed to make a change in our season, which I was inheriting. Um, mm -hmm. And that I wanted something that spoke specifically to uh, to uh, police brutality towards black bodies, to um, to the civil war, to the systems that continue to uh, ravage us in this country, and uh, in a way that was healing, and with a piece that felt like coming out, going through it, and coming out the other end, you could feel a sense of hope and resistance moving forward. And what happens to Citizen in this play and how he leaves carrying the mantle of Sally Two Kings to, uh, to, to go down south in Jim Crow South and uh, rescue his sister. Um, uh, you know, there's, we're still in, you know, big time KKK time. We're in, we're in a, a moment of lynching of, of Jim Crow law still ruling America in 1904. And I have to say, the way uh, people on the right um, and a lot of white supremacists and people in, in a certain party are speaking these days feels like we're right back at the Civil War. The arguments they're making comes, I go back to the documents of, of what senators and, and Congress people were saying back in the Civil War time. And these guys are saying the same things today. Um, and when you see Confederate flags show up in the Capitol um, and, and all these sorts of things, you go, we're kind of reliving another phase of the attempt to go back to Jim Crow. And that's true about the way uh, women's bodies are being treated, um, transgender uh, folks are being treated in this country, uh, the way they're trying to uh, deal with our children and keep them from getting information about American history that actually would uh, give a narrative that centers uh, uh, black lives and uh, uh, people other than, you know, the kind of whitewashing that has been going on forever. We are in a real battle right now. And there's lines in the play like um, Sally talking about the Civil War and he says, we still settle in it. You know, this is 1904. Well, I'd say it's the same right now. There's people still fighting. And then, you know, the white character in the play, uh, Rutherford Seelig, who says he was coming through town after there's a riot at the mill going on um, about the drowning of this black man by this police officer. And he says, and, and this one white guy says to another one, would you fight another war? Talking about the Civil War. And mm. the guy says, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Rutherford Zewi says, well, I was a little surprised by that, but not too surprised. Um, and it's kind of what, exactly the talk we're talking about. Or, or when Sally talks about freedom, he says, you got to fight for it. Um, and he says, all freedom means is you got a long road to hoe and no plow. And, and, and you just think about the struggles that we are still fighting for yeah. equality. We're, we're just asking for equality right. <laughs> and, right. and, and, and the intense efforts and voting rights and go on and on and on. It's why this character is called citizen, because we're still not being treated as full citizens. Yeah. We're trying to take away our rights and, and democracy 
and multiculturalism is what's on the table. Um, right. So genuine I, multicultural yeah. democracy. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, I, 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 you can, no, I can no, go all fine. day about this. That's why I chose this play. That's why Gem of the Ocean is a great play to do right now. And I yeah. and I put it up next to to Joe Turner, which is also one of my favorites of August and one of my favorites in the in, in American canon. But it's it's a brilliant, brilliant play. I'm so proud to be able to work on it right now. I'm so I'm, I'm so proud to talk, so happy to talk to you. Um, uh, you will you be directed? This is the first one you've directed at Theater Works. You're going to reserve a slot each season for yourself, or, or is it not going to be that program? Oh yeah, no, I'll be yeah. I'll be directing every season, but I okay. I may not direct uh, August Wilson every season. <laughs> okay. But I, but I but I have three more to go to complete my canon. So I'm trying to. Oh right, do... okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you've got to do yes. the whole canon, like yeah, yes. Do... I know people talk about the shape. They finished the Shakespeare canon, but you got to do the, you got to finish the, the August Wilson canon there. Yeah. Yep. I got Joe Turner, uh, Seven Guitars, and King Headley II to finish. So, um, if anyone's listening, <laughs> universe, <laughs> uh, I'm 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 ready. I'm ready. <laughs> all of them were all of them worth doing. Well, Tim, it's really great to talk to you and and see you. Um, and uh, you know, I wish you the best with. Uh, with theater works i hope we cross paths again at a conference or something at yes. some point and uh thanks for everyone for for listening ali pearson thanks for producing this this week's episode um we'll be back in may take Excellent. care thanks rob i'll right, see you in bye. pittsburgh i hope that's right yeah. pittsburgh yeah august Perfect. wilson town okay Perfect. okay bye. Bye now. all right bye-bye